Section 30 of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Antonia by George Sand, translated by George Burnham Ives. Chapter 7, Part 3. About noon, Sister St. Just found her in this state of listless contemplation, which she mistook for a beatific reverie. Some broken hearts are still so sweet and gentle that one does not suspect their suffering. But the sister had noticed, as she passed through the room, used as an antechamber and dining room, that the breakfast brought by the servant had grown cold untouched. "'Did you forget to eat?' she asked Julie. "'No, sister,' replied the poor unhappy creature, "'who did not choose to allow herself to be pitied. "'I was waiting for my appetite to come.' "'The nun urged her to eat, "'obligingly waited on her, "'and thought to divert her mind by her harmless, unmeaning chatter. "'Julie listened with inexhaustible good humor and carried mental submission so far as to seem interested in all the minutiae of that recluse's life, all the details of the regulations of the convent, all the dull little events which occupied the leisure of the community. What did she care, whether she heard that or something else? It was no longer in the power of anyone to annoy or tire her. She was like an empty heart through which everything passes and in which nothing remains. When Marcel arrived in the afternoon, his cousin said, Why did you tell me that lady was ill and had reasons for being unhappy? She slept soundly without saying a word. She breakfasted reasonably well, although a little late, and she took great pleasure in talking with me. She is a very amiable person, and she has no serious sorrow. I give you my word that she has not, for I know about such things. Marcel was alarmed by this sorrow without reaction. He came to tell her what had taken place that morning at the Hotel d'Estrelle. Julie confined herself to asking him for news of Julian and his mother. When she learned that they were moving and that they were to pass that night at Severus, she would not listen to anything else. I do not propose to hate anyone any more, she said. It would cause me more misery and do no good. Do not mention Monsieur Antoine to me for three or four days. I beg you, my friend, allow me to become accustomed to my lot as best I can. You see that I do not rebel. That is all that is necessary. On the following days, Marcel found her calmer and calmer. She was very pale but the nun assured him that she slept and ate as much as was necessary, and that was true. She did nothing during the day and did not wish to see anyone, declaring that she was not at all bored. That was also true. She was preoccupied and sometimes she smiled. Marcel could not understand it at all. He urged her to consult the convent physician, who found her pulse a little weak her complexion a little phlegmatic, as they said in those days, to indicate the presence of a certain amount of lymph in the system. He prescribed quinine and told Marcel that it would amount to nothing. 
It did amount to nothing, except that the heart was dying and the life fading away with it. Julie obediently took the quinine, walked about the garden of the convent, consented to receive visits from several nuns, impressed them as a very attractive person, promised to read some new books which Marcel brought her and which he did not open, prepared a piece of embroidery which she did not begin, lived almost unnoticed in the cloister, thanks to her unobtrusive manners, and continued to waste away slowly, without paroxysms, but without remission. Marcel was deceived by appearances, seeing that she was so placid mentally, and mistaking that sudden disappearance of the will for the symptom of a struggle between a mighty willpower and nature itself. He sought the remedy where it was not. He turned his attention to her physical health. He hired a small country house at Nantier, and giving Julie to understand that he had purchased it for her, carried her thither. Then, having made sure of Camille's discretion and devotion to her mistress, he sent for her. He supplied her with enough money to enable her to hire a peasant woman who could cook, and he made arrangements that the countess's table should be daintier and more substantial than that at the convent. The little house was located in an airy spot, with a garden of considerable size surrounded by walls and with not sufficient shade to keep the sun from doing its healthful work. He supplied the salon with books, little articles to provide occupation or amusement, and Julie's harp. Every woman in those days performed on that instrument more or less, Marcel having taught her her lesson. Camille deceived her mistress as to what had happened at the Hotel Destro, and as to the means at her disposal. She made her believe that everything was extremely cheap at Nantier, and that she could afford to live comfortably without exceeding the limits of her small income. Julie wished to be poor and to owe nothing to Monsieur Antoine. That was the only point on which Marcel had found her resistance invincible. He had been forced to lie and to let her believe that Monsieur Antoine had taken possession of her house, her diamonds, and everything that belonged to her. The diamonds were in Marcel's custody. The house was kept in excellent condition. The horses were in the stable well cared for, and the carriages in the carriage house. The servants had been paid off and discharged, under orders to return upon advantageous terms, as soon as Madame d'Estrelle should return. The concierge took care of the house, groomed and exercised the horses. His wife dusted the rooms, opened and closed the windows. Monsieur Antoine's head gardener attended to the flowers and lawns. Monsieur Antoine himself visited the place every morning. The pavilion after Madame Thierry had gone away was closed and silent, but nothing was changed in Julie's abode. Every piece of furniture was in its place, and the sun shone through the windows of her empty salon. Two months had passed since the day that Julie left the hotel. Uncle Antoine was simply the caretaker and painstaking administrator of the property. He had retained his privilege of being admitted there, pending the time when it should please Julie to resume possession. He desired to return it to her intact and to re-employ such of her servants 
as she might wish to have about her. The concierge was ordered to inform visitors that Madame continued to own her house for the present, and that she had gone to inspect her estate in the Beauvoir Sea, and to make some definite plans for the future. That is to say, Monsieur Antoine, in concert with Marcel, having in view the what will people say, represented Madame d'Estrelle's situation as the continuation of an armistice with her creditors, and, as she had been in that situation for more than two years already, that was really the most plausible explanation. They would see about inventing a perfectly convincing one when Julie should consent to return. It is true, nonetheless, that Julie's friends, the old Duc de Quesnoy, Madame la Présidente, Madame de Morges, Abbe de Nevrise, and the rest, began to be much surprised that they did not hear from her. Her sudden departure had been accepted with reasonably good grace, thanks to the hints adroitly strewn about by the solicitor. But why did she not write? She must be very lazy, or perhaps she was ill. Was she really in the Beauvoisie? But the old duke had to go to take the waters of Vichy. Madame la Présidente was engrossed by the marriage of her daughter. The abbé was like the household cat. He forgot everything when the fire on the hearth died out. Madame de Morges was indolence personified. The Marquise de Strel alone would have been likely to investigate the subject seriously. But her malice was suddenly paralyzed by a sharp threat from Monsieur Antoine to disclose her conduct and demand his money. If she ventured to make the slightest investigation or the faintest derogatory remark concerning Julie. As will be seen, Monsieur Antoine behaved with extraordinary fairness, prudence and loyalty in everything that concerned the reputation, the comfort and the pecuniary interests of his victim. He listened to Marcel's advice, discussed it with him as if the question at issue were what it was best to do for his own daughter and followed it exactly. Touching the fundamental question as to which Marcel did his utmost to bend him, the union of the two lovers, he was inflexible. And as he lost his temper when Marcel pressed him too hard on that subject, sulked and shut the door in his face. Marcel was compelled, in his client's interest, to submit to delays of which he could see no end. Madame Thierry and Julian were luxuriously established in their pretty cottage, for the best part of the furniture had been left there, as well as diverse artistic objects of considerable value, which Uncle Antoine had disdained to notice because he had no idea of their value. Julian had no confidence in this unexpected generosity, for which he had been warned not to thank Monsieur Antoine and which was surrounded with inexplicable circumstances. He was so disturbed about it that, except for the duty of sacrificing his own pride to his mother's repose, he would have refused everything. Their position was excellent from a material standpoint. The income of 5,000 francs enabled them to live modestly without awaiting anxiously the avails of Julian's feverish labor at the end of each week. Madame Thierry could not help feeling the most heartfelt delight in being restored to her house. 
her most cherished memories, her former habits and connections. The latter were less numerous than in the days when her table was always laid, but they were more reliable. Her only true friends came forward once more. Knowing that she had no more than was absolutely necessary, they exerted themselves to provide an advantageous market for Julian's pictures. Not until one had ceased to suffer from poverty can one make the most of his talent. Julian no longer needed to hurry. His customers came unsolicited through the intervention of enlightened and kindly friends. He consoled his mother for the secret dissatisfaction she felt in being Monsieur Antoine's debtor by saying to her, Never fear, I will pay your debt to him, against his will if need be. It is simply a question of time. Be happy, you see that I am not disturbed by Julie's silence, but that I am waiting confidently and calmly. Julian had changed neither in bearing, nor manner, nor feature, since the fatal day of Julie's disappearance. At first he had believed what Marcel said, but as no letter arrived from his mistress, and as he knew beyond doubt, as the result of inquiries he had made secretly, that she was not in the Beauvoisy, he had gradually detected a part of the horrible truth. Julie was free for Marcel had sworn it on his honor again and again. But as to certain other points, he did not swear. He asserted nothing. He simply left them to their presumptions. He refused, with shrewd persistence, to listen to any confidential communication, which made it easier for him to evade many questions. Monsieur Antoine's Machiavellian plan was too eccentric to be fathomed by Julian's straightforward mind. He did not suppose that jealousy was possible without love, and he would have considered that he insulted Julie's image by admitting that the old man was in love with her. The old man was not in love, that is certain, but he was as jealous as a tiger of Julian, and jealousy without love is the most implacable form of jealousy. Julian believed that he was mad. Can anyone divine the schemes of a madman? But might not those schemes, whatever they were, affect Julie's determination? No, said Julian to himself. Pecuniary consideration cannot have influenced that noble heart. Julie wishes to break with me. She chooses to bring about the rupture in silence. It is painful to her but she considers it necessary. She trembled for her reputation. The marchioness threatened to ruin her, and her friends must have succeeded in convincing her that she could never rehabilitate herself after marrying a plebeian. Such is the opinion of society. Julie fancied for a moment that she was superior to such prejudices. Her love for me led her to presume too far on her strength. She has a noble nature, but her mind is a little weak, perhaps, and now the force of her character is being exerted to bring about the triumph of the prejudice which kills love. Poor dear Julie, she must suffer because she is kind-hearted, because she understands my suffering. So far as she is concerned, I feel certain that she desires to forget me. 
End of section 30.